The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Okay, I'm going to let you in into a little secret. Some personal habits of mine. I get up at four o'clock every morning, except for when the power runs out on my mobile phone and the alarm doesn't work. Why do I do that? Well, partly because I grew up on a dairy farm and I'm sort of used to getting up at four o'clock in the morning, but also because I love it. Not because I'm milking cows, but because every morning at four o'clock, I get up and I go roaming around the world of the global economy and what's happening in financial markets, with all of the numbers being pumped out of stats bureaus around the world, what central bankers are saying, all that sort of thing. It is my secret love because I started out in life as a financial journalist working in Wellington for Reuters. Now, you might not know what Reuters is. Reuters is a financial news service mostly that back in the early 90s provided news for people trading in foreign exchange markets. And my job was to put out news items that were 144 characters long. So the length of a long headline. Long enough to get the information you need to trade foreign exchange. And that meant knowing what central bankers were saying, knowing how our economies were doing, knowing what was going to happen to official interest rates. That's how I started off in life. And eventually I worked with Reuters in Wellington, in Canberra, in Sydney, in London, in Singapore for 10 years. And I got addicted to the world of financial markets, news and information. And I still find it fascinating. I haven't kicked the habit, even though it's not my main gig anymore. I still get up at four o'clock every morning, go through the world's websites, news sites, data sites to try to understand what's going on because it still matters to New Zealand, even though most people think, or at least appear to think, that it doesn't matter. Now, why am I talking about this? The global economy, financial markets, central banks, because this week on When the Facts Change, we're going to do something a bit different. We've got a half an hour interview with Adrian Orr, the Reserve Bank Governor, who has just come back from the big central bankers gig in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, in the United States. Jackson Hole is a place that not many people know about. It is essentially a bit like Queenstown, but on steroids. So in Queenstown, you might see a few people wandering around who are millionaires, but in Jackson Hole, everyone's a billionaire. It's where Beyonce and Kanye and a whole bunch of hedge fund managers go to live, in part because the state has very low taxes, but also it's a spectacular place. The scenery is amazing. The fishing is really good. And every August, COVID accepted, central bankers have gathered in Jackson Hole to talk about the world of central banking and what's happening in macroeconomics. It's a crucial meeting and it's quite exclusive. Only 100 to 120 people are invited. You have to be essentially one of the world's best macroeconomists or running a central bank to be there. And this year, Adrian Orr, our governor, was invited. 
for a bunch of reasons. You know, we're not that big in the world of global economics and macroeconomics, and we have been invited before. But New Zealand went, and Adrian Orr says he was asked a lot about what we had done in the last couple of years. Because right now, central bankers are under attack all over the world. For good reasons, say a bunch of people. They let inflation get out of control, is the allegation. And the US Federal Reserve is the biggest dog on the block. It is, of course, the system of central banks in the United States that effectively sets interest rates for the rest of the world. We talk with Adrian Orr about how that is reflected in our interest rates and in our inflation. And it's a lot more than you'd think. He explains it well, in part because he's worked overseas covering these sorts of things as well as an economist, and knows how important it is that inflation, growth, interest rates, exchange rates translate through into what we actually see in our prices, in our wages, in our term deposit rates, in our mortgage rates, in our economic growth rates. And it's his job, it really is, to understand how it's going to translate here and what he needs to do to try to keep inflation around about 2%. And he's got the same problem everyone else has. New Zealand was invited, at least in part, and the questions he got were because he and New Zealand pulled back on quantitative easing and 0% or near 0% interest rates before everyone else. Just over a year ago, at an online version of Jackson Hole, the US Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said that he thought inflation was going to be transitory, and that's why the Fed wasn't uh, overreacting or reacting very quickly to a rise in inflation that we were seeing a year ago. This was, of course, before the Ukraine war, uh, before fresh outbreaks of COVID, before it became clear an energy price surge, and of course all the dramas around the Ukraine war, were extending inflation and increasing it to the point where in the United States it's over 9%. We're going to see inflation of well over 10% in the United Kingdom. In Europe, it's already uh, at the moment running at more than 10%, and on an annual basis just over 9%. And in New Zealand, uh, we have inflation of over 7% as well. Now, it's supposed to be around 2%, and central banks are now uh, in catch-up mode. But we were the first to get into catch-up mode, and so that's one of the reasons New Zealand and Adrian Orr uh, was invited along and uh, asked lots of questions about uh, how we did it. In our discussions, I wanted to find out a lot more about how the central banks are feeling about the global economy right now, where it is they're learning, they were wrong, about how inflation wasn't going to fade away, how much of the changes we're seeing in labour markets with higher wage inflation, shortages of people are permanent, how much COVID might have changed the way the labour market works in a permanent way, how deglobalisation might affect inflation. And in general, what we're likely to see flow through here over the next couple of years, not in a direct way. Now, this was a conversation we had on uh, Thursday, September the 1st. This was before uh, we saw some numbers from the United States on jobs, which are quite closely watched. 
So if you're listening to this on um, Monday, September the 4th or 5th, just know that this was recorded on the 1st and obviously didn't take into account the key numbers from the United States, which we haven't seen yet. And I say this because those jobs numbers are numbers that I now care about and know about and get up at four o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning and try and find out about it. It's it's a bit of a flaw. It's a bit of an obsession. But it's one I suspect I share with a few people, including Adrian Orr. That's this week on When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey. Welcome to When the Facts Change, Adrian Orr, the Governor of the Reserve Bank. Great to see you. Greetings. Thank you, Bennett. Glad to see you got back safely from Jackson Hole. Uh, for those people who haven't heard of Jackson Hole or don't know why it's the biggest thing since sliced bread for people who are interested in macroeconomics and global finance, well, why is Jackson Hole so important? So it's you know, Jackson Hole itself is a location in the middle of Wyoming. Um, it does feel a bit strange travelling all around the world to sit in a paddock and stare at mountains. We've got plenty of those here. But in that paddock uh, with us are the global uh, community of monetary policy experts. So it's run by the US Federal Reserve of Kansas, and they've got a 45-year track record now of having this annual gig, and they get uh, central bankers from all around the world and, uh, I'd say, top academics and they choose, you know, chunky themes. They don't try and just talk about everything all at once. They'll choose, they'll go deep on a particular theme. So this year it was around the constraints on on economic activity. Um, that seems rather real and topical for all central banks. So why should people in New Zealand who, you know, paying their mortgages or um, paying their rent or getting money from a term deposit wondering whether they, they're going to get a pay rise or not or keep their jobs. Why should they care about what people like um, Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve Chair in the United States, or the policymakers at the European Central Bank, why should we care here in New Zealand what they're thinking and doing? You know, we are a very small economy bobbing around on a global financial um, ocean. And, you know, the big swirls and waves that come in that financial ocean are driven by the larger countries in the world. Uh, the US dollar is still the, the uh, common denominator largely um, in currencies around the world. So what is happening to US monetary policy, European monetary policy is still absolutely critical to what is happening to the New Zealand economy and particularly around interest rates, exchange rates and all things financial. If US interest rates go up um, and we don't, well then that's downward pressure on our exchange rate as one simple example. Likewise, if um, the world gets spooked and everyone wants to rush to safety, that's generally the US dollar. So again, our exchange rate goes down or our interest rates go up. So we're inter interconnected. Um, we can't deny that, and every country is. Countries have different ways of, of connecting. You know, um, for us in New Zealand, we've chosen to have a freely floating exchange rate, um, which is, is a, a first best choice in my book. Um, that means we can control local inflation, but we can't control the exchange rate, and the base level of interest rates are set internationally, not here. So. Because we debate a lot about inflation, and often it's framed as a political issue, and the focus is very much on local stuff and what the government's doing or what the Reserve Bank's doing. But 
how much of the inflation that we see and how much of the interest rates that we have do you think are, are driven by, you know, inflation overseas or interest rate expectations overseas? Yeah, so, you know, I would say the vast bulk on average through time for interest rates are determined overseas. You know, there's the global savings and then there's global demand for capital and that's what sets the global interest rate. Then for any one country, we are really just anchoring off what is that global interest rate. The nearest measure of the global interest rate would be um, the cost of debt in the US for the US government, you know, the lowest risk um, uh, uh, type of anchor. And then we anchor ourselves either above that or below that, depending on our own business cycle. Um, you know, the, the wonderful thing uh, Jackson Hole brings is an opportunity, um, you know, for the three legs of leadership, getting perspective, um, having empathy, and uh, having the courage to do the right thing through that. So, you know, a little bit of that Jackson Hole gig was a victim support group. Central bankers are, if you know, they're under immense pressure. Um, globally, it's no different. In each country, everyone's got higher than targeted inflation and everyone is wearing, you know, the blame for that because our task is to keep large, stable inflation. So on the, you know, the perspective side, uh, global inflation is very high. I, I summed it up uh, in my mind. The closer you are to the Baltics, you are around 15 to 20% inflation and still rising. Core Europe, you are between 10 and 15% and still rising. Uh, the UK, I will consider part of Europe for that, that component. And then, you know, around the rest of the world, excluding um, China, Japan, uh, we're somewhere between... Uh, 5 and 8% inflation. That's where New Zealand sits. So that perspective of just how high inflation is globally is, is critical. You know, we have had, the world is poorer. We've had true economic shocks where the potential growth rates of countries are very inhibited by higher energy costs, uh, a lack of labour resources, uh, war, trade, all of these things. And that is those big global perspectives that are creating the inflation pressure. So at the last Jackson Hole uh, conference, the Fed chair was at that point saying, well, I think this inflation might be transitory. And uh, he was seen as the head of team transitory. Although at that point, um, our Reserve Bank uh, had stopped its quantitative easing pro pro process and was in the process of um, planning for rate hikes, which started in October, and the Reserve Bank was amongst the first in the world to do it. But the Fed chair's view has changed since then, and he said in the speech, uh, which was public uh, over the weekend, that um, uh, the inflation was taking longer than everyone expected to get down, and the US Federal Reserve was going to just keep on hammering at it until it was done. How did you feel the sort of mood or the vibe was of the other central banks in terms of, you know, that was last year, this is this year? Yeah, without doubt, the uh, the tone changed considerably. Um, Jerome Powell set two records um, in his speech the other day. He uh, came in under eight minutes for a monetary policy speech, so that must be amongst the world's shortest. And he took around 3% off global equity markets, so it must be around one of the world's most expensive speeches. They say small things are generally more expensive, and he delivered. Um, what did he deliver? Uh, he is reminding people that 
first and foremost, their primary concern is maintaining low and stable inflation. And and yes, uh, people have underestimated the 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 scale and persistence of the shocks that the globe is going through at the moment, mostly with regard to just once the economy shrinks in its capacity to produce, once labour is scarce, uh, capital is scarce, energy is more expensive, the uh, inflationary pressures are much higher and more persistent. So, you know, the focus of this of this gig was around what's happened to the supply potential of countries. And so, you know, now now the US, the rest of Europe are saying, wow, this really is a permanent dent in our, in our um, capability to produce goods and services without generating inflation. And so they're having to um, tighten policy. They want to win the day on credibility. You cannot have uh, maximum sustainable employment without low and stable inflation. So that's their primary goal. They're having to repeat it often because markets, you know, they will pick 15 of our next two moves. Markets are already trying to pick, have they done enough so far and when can they start easing? And so, you know, the uh, central bankers globally are saying it's not for some time yet. You know, there will be uh, a prolonged period where economic demand has to be reduced to below the potential growth rate of the economy to take the inflation pressures out. That chunk that's come out of supply, um, where, where is that? What caused that? Yeah, so, you know, if, if you know, I like to think about it, um, Earth is now poorer. Uh, we've got a sudden realisation around climate change and so we're having around um, for any one investment the returns are different or less. Um, we have got much higher input costs, uh, energy, much higher uh, consumption costs, food, we have got, whilst employment levels have remained where they are, hours of work are declining, so we've got less supply capacity. And uh, war does nothing to um, long-term growth potential for, for a country. And obviously you're seeing geopolitical tensions, uh, particularly in the Europe area, but, but everywhere. So these are areas where the world's capacity to produce has shrunk in part temporarily. Some of these things will resolve themselves, supply chains. In other parts, there is a fundamental change in investment needs for, for countries. So, you know, a lot of the uh, the work and the academic research was trying to sift through how much of this is going to be uh, set us on a lower permanent growth trajectory versus a, uh, a, a back to normal, but normal was always uh, much lower than what was being priced in the markets. So what did you learn from those papers about how much of it's permanent and how much of it's temporary? Yeah, you have the, um, um, those famous words of other people, too early to tell. But um, without doubt, the signals are that um, long-run growth uh, is going to be on a lower trajectory um, than, say, in the beginning of this, uh, this century. So the lower trajectory is a part around demographics. It's part around um, the, the the shocks I've just talked about, the climate change shocks, part around the pandemic supply chains. You're seeing a change in behaviour around regional trade now. Um, rather than just-in-time stocking, it's just-in-case stocking. Um, you are seeing uh, quite a lot of, you know, just general change in economic behaviour that is not conducive to 
innovation or increasing high growth that's constraining it at the moment. That deglobalisation uh, idea has been talked about a lot, you know, tensions between China and the United States and, of course, the uh, war in Ukraine. But there's some people push back and go, actually, when you look at the trade numbers, there's still plenty of stuff going in and out. And not many companies have pulled out of uh, China. It's a massively integrated supply chain that's be like trying to unpick the tangle of cords at the bottom of your bag. You know, it's really hard to do. So what's your view on that deglobalisation thing? Uh, I think global trade will uh, be uh, continue to grow and be stronger through time. But there is going to be a higher fixed cost to doing business. Um, you know, the, I use the phrase uh, just-in-case stocking. Um, all good ideas get taken to too much of an extreme and they become a bad idea. If you're trying to run a factory somewhere else in the world based on the uh, just-in-time delivery of a ball bearing from another part of the world, well, you might decide that you're going to stock some ball bearings. <laughs> and, um, you know, so that fixed cost of activity has happened. The, um, the other one around outright security, whether it's uh, food security, cyber security, uh, access to labour security, people are going to be far more comfortable carrying um, you know, additional surplus um, uh, capacity, even if it's not always used. So, so those changes have happened. On the flip side of it, you know, there was a really good banter around, well, um, what's working from home done? Um, so employment levels have stayed where they are, but hours worked have declined per employee globally. And we're doing that because uh, we're probably more productive. We're probably, uh, we've now got more capital. Our bedroom is now an office. Um, you know, it's almost like a capital injection. And so that is, that's, has heightened productivity, but it varies significantly across sectors. And, and so you'll see, well, aggregate productivity may have held up, it's highly variable across sectors. Those who can benefit from working from home have done so. Those who can't are really struggling. Physical transport, physical activity. So, you know, you will see real changes in, in um, supply chains continuously for a long time to come. Because when COVID first happened, we all thought, you know, we'll work from home for a few weeks and then it'll all go back to normal. But not just the physical effect of COVID, long COVID, but also some of the what appear to be almost permanent changes in how people work. You know, they're now working only four days a week or three days a week from home and two days in the office or three days in the office and two days at home. Uh, how will we, when will we know, how will we know when, okay, that's not a temporary thing, that's a permanent thing and this is what it means? You know, I, I think we know now. I, I would say most firms globally, I spend a lot of time talking with the other central banks, I spend a lot of time talking with business, um, you know, if you're going to get um, three to four days of people in the office and two to and one to two days working from home, that looks about the norm that's happened now. Which two days is it? Um, determined by the individuals. Uh, what does it mean? You can get a, a significant lift in productivity. Um, people are far more focused, less hours to achieve the same outcome, less commuting, less fixed cost to doing business in a lot of ways, but it does challenge other means. Um, are we losing innovation by not being together and, and sharing ideas and um, chatting? Are we have, do we have disconnected labour forces, people who have never actually met their colleagues? You know, that is now a real thing. Two years in a labour force haven't been to the shop yet. So, um, you know, the, the, you know there's the, um, the for and against, but I would say you are 
in a new equilibrium where where managers are going to have to be far more focused on managing outcomes, not not inputs, having trust and confidence that you know that the people are there. Uh, and um, people are going to be far more flexible and demand that flexibility in how they work. So that's quite a good story on productivity. And typically when you have productivity growth, that's actually good for inflation. But on the same token, you, you've got fewer people working. Maybe they've got long COVID. You've got a chunk of the world where, you know, trade's hit by the war. You've got these geopolitical... So what net net do you think all of these permanent changes mean for inflation and growth as we see it? Uh, you know, in the long run, uh, and I'll say the long run, you know, over the, over the uh, next, you know, five to ten years, I would say productivity and, and per capita growth will be back to a steady state level of what we saw pre-COVID. But we have to remember that level that 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 level was a low growth level. It was not the uh, you know a, a boom period. We will see uh, absolutely. If I think about it, um, throwing more resources at the same thing has been a means of growth for some large parts of the world. But that's not productivity enhancing. That's coming to an end. You know, the labour force of China has now been discovered and is now being embedded. So we we're missing that that big free lunch we had for a while around just more and more people doing the same thing. Um, now we have to either do the same thing better or better things. A lot of the immediate technology usage we've seen has been about doing the same job but just better. So doing my job but from home without commuting. Um, the, the real challenge will be around what are the better things that we start doing because of our connectivity and because of these economic shocks. So a lot of those better things are going to need significant investment, you know, the, 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 uh, the swing towards uh, sustainability on the climate um, area. That's going to be massive areas for investment, fantastic productivity pickups, but you're not going to see that for some time. Meanwhile, you're going to have industries written off. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice.
A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Now, on the issue of financial markets and um, financial stability, often it's a Jackson Hole and, and the various meetings overseas are a good chance to find out, you know, uh, where, the, where the sounds of a bomb about to go off in the system are. And, you know, 2008-9, you know, everyone could uh, talk to all the other bankers and find out what's going on. Um, when you have these sort of geopolitical shocks, the war, the inflation, uh, Sometimes that causes grief in some markets. We haven't seen, you know, collapses of banks in Europe or or the states. But I just wonder what was your feeling about, you know, where the the, the places to watch are. Where 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 are the bodies starting to be buried? Yeah. Well, the um, first and foremost, I mean, Russia wasn't at this meeting, so um, but they are, they are um, in other meetings. So. You know, the closer to that region of the world, um, the harder, uh, the higher actual inflation is. So if you think about, if I, I put it into the three big areas, Europe's in a really tough position where they have a single monetary policy, but they don't have a joint fiscal policy. So, you know, the interest rate is, is um, they've only got a single interest rate for that vast group of countries. Some have extremely high inflation rates, others uh, uh, less so. Who, where is that interest rate set and how they're really going to get on top of the inflation challenge for them. That is a real, a real challenge for them. Uh, you go into the, you know, a lot of our trading partners in the, uh, the Asian region, any, any country that is trying to fix or manage their exchange rate is really struggling at the moment. You know, we, we float, we're not party to that, but if you're trying to fix or manage, um, you're hearing a sucking sound of capital going on in your country um, because the capital is going to the US, the US dollar is appreciating for all of the reasons. If you want to peg yourself to the US dollar, you are having to intervene uh, in your own currency or set up capital controls or have a myriad of macro prudential tools, you know, leverage ratios on banks and liquidity and capital. So it's expensive and complex to have, you know, there's no free lunch. If you want to fix your exchange rate, other things need to move. So that is a real pressure. You know, that was, uh, I'm not saying it's an Asian financial crisis, but that was the beginning of that of, um, in, the, in the late 1970s, uh, 1990s, sorry. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's how Thailand got into trouble and caused the financial crisis. Is there anything like that brewing that we should watch well, out for? Well, the good news is, you know, that, that region of the world, and we're very close with them, we, we um, through um, another group of central banks, uh, really are significantly bolstered to manage through those periods. Um, the new challenge to them, so, you know, in terms of reserves, in terms of capital controls, in terms of credibility, a real challenge for them, though, is that uh, the high inflation that's coming through most impacts on low socioeconomic groups and it's energy and it's food. So social cohesion is being challenged, you know, really challenged. That's a global story and really felt... Um, I was talking to a colleague at the Bank of Thailand, and apologies if I get the stats wrong, but I think there were 40 million tourists pre-COVID. Um, they got down to 400,000 back at about 4 million. You know, just the scale of, of the impact they're doing and now the scale of support that um, the government balance sheets need to provide to keep them keep these countries on a good path. So through Jackson Hole, there were a whole bunch of speeches and papers presented um 
one of the fun things I did at university was uh, listen to some great lectures and uh, sometimes you'd be going out of the lectures fizzing. You know, that was an idea I'd never thought of or a, a, a data point that, like, opened my eyes. Did you have any moments like that where, you know, you were listening to a speech and thought, well, that's a genuine new insight. I had no idea about that. Or I need to, like, write a note and send it to my, my direct reports. Cabal, no, you know, I'll say this. What I found was, you know, I mentioned perspective, empathy, courage. Um, perspective was just fantastic uh, and, and a way of, um, you know, we all look at ourselves and blame ourselves, but, you know, it's such a global phenomenon. Um, that perspective came where we talked about uh, this inflation world, uh, um, the IMF, it's mainly fiscal. Um, the IMM, it's mainly monetary. Or the IMR, it's mainly real. And, um, you know, the, some countries were really up against that fiscal barrier. If you have got extremely high government debt, then the incentives to either inflate that debt away, i.e. let inflation expectations get away on you, or to outright default are real. And, you know, you, you don't, you, we've got plenty of examples, um, recent and, um, you know, and, and right on the edge globally where fiscal positions are just, you know, never been so high. I mean, the US sits sort of amongst that. The, it's mainly monetary group didn't get much say at all because, you know, we've, we've had plenty of criticism here. It's all the settlement cash balances and da 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 da. Um, you know, the money times velocity equals price times output. Um, you know, everyone says, whilst that's great, the velocity is the thing that is endogenous. It just does not move according to that that framework. So the monetarists were allowed to have their say, but um, they didn't really get much uh, momentum on the ground. There's nothing new there. And why, why is the velocity slowed down? Is there a savings glut, or is everyone like Scrooge McDuck got it piled up in the corner? Or it's, what? it's more that, that um, uh, our banking system is so fundamentally changed. We've got uh, we've got uh, capital expectations, we've got liquidity expectations, we've got loan-to-value ratio expectations, we've got the transparency. It's just not the banking sector of the 1970s. So even though there might be a, a pot of poo sitting in the settlement cash balance here, um, it's just the outright demand that's not being met and the ability for the banks to do the multipliers they used to do. So, you know, that was um, writ large across all countries. It wasn't specific to New Zealand. Everyone you know, was comfortable there. It was the it's mostly real side that had the insights and, the, and uh, you know, so I was pleased to hear that's largely where we are. And that's around, you know, out potential output, output gaps, shapes of the Phillips curve, you know, the trade-off between inflation and employment, real side supply shocks and inflation expectations, you know, that, that world of pulling these things together. And across all of those countries, you know, there were insights for us here in New Zealand, both helping us explain, but also areas of research around potential output. You know, um, uh, do not focus just on the level of employment. It's the hours worked. It's the participation. It's a wide range of things that really matter. Don't focus on just the fact that nominal wages rose. Of course they do when relative prices shift like they do. It's around how does that feed through to broader expectation, generalised side. And what shape is this Phillips curve? You know, for years, central banks kept lowering interest rates, but inflation wouldn't rise. And so everyone finally flattened this trade-off in their frameworks. Well, guess what? It's back. You know, so there's a certain level. The ghost of Bill Phillips is back, is it? That's right. Well, you know, there's, these things are always non-linear. You know, at some point, it bites. And that was the real revelation that um, the US, you know, that's what um, Jay Powell in his eight minutes was saying. We've hit that limit. 
there is not much more we can do other than tighten. Demand has to slow. It has to be below potential output, full stop. And, you know, so um, no ambiguity in that. So, you know, there were some really interesting ones. I did feel more comfortable for Aotearoa in the sense that, um, you know, it's mainly fiscal. It's just not an issue here because of our Fiscal Responsibility Act, low levels of net debt. It's just, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a problem because we're managing it. Not because we're different. Um, the it's mainly monetary. We can explain very easily through the systems and look at our own credit stats to say, well, that's not it. So it's about refining those tool sets, and more importantly, refining our how we communicate and how we how we show bias to risk either side. You know, when when you're uncertain, what what what's the worst things that we most might want to avoid um, rather than what's the average we're trying to achieve. So just um, to finish up, uh, any particular takeaway? You you know you jumped on the plane and thought, right, that's the thing. I think the what it was almost what wasn't talked about and what was monetary policy and central bankers get together and celebrate thirty years of independence. Yet at the same time, they talked about um, uh, the role that fiscal policy played in this in this interaction. What is the optimal level of monetary and fiscal policy coordination and how can we get over this? Uh, independence does not mean isolation. Independence means knowing what we have to do in full information set of the fiscal authorities. Did you get a sense that people are a little bit worried that, you know, um, the independence is at threat after the, you know, the dramas of the last few years? It's always a topic. I think it's important that central bankers always remain paranoid about losing the independence because it's how do you keep earning it? And so this transparency, this explanation around what we can and can't do. And, you know, the perspective that I think people are missing is we have had a wealth shock. We are poorer as citizens of planet Earth because of this COVID, uh, because of the climate change implications, because we keep going back to war. Uh, Monetary policy can smooth the pain through time or shift it between sectors but it can't avoid pain being met. So you're right about that overall wealth has reduced, but one of the problems is that for some people, they're actually wealthier by what happened over the last few years with monetary policy. And was there any discussion about, you know, the effects of inequality on how people run monetary policy or how that widening inequality gap might endanger central bank independence? Yeah, so not specifically at this gig, although there was plenty of reference to it in the conversation. So, um, size, but certainly in the history of Jackson Hole, the the, um, the distributional impacts of monetary policy, um, the uh, um, are really important. You know, central bankers are pretty impotent. Really, we can only operate on aggregate demand. We can't shift supply around much and create. So, yes, where where it was most talked about was that it's mainly fiscal view of the world. Inflation hurts the poor. Default hurts the savers. Um, there are some pretty stark choices in some countries out there. Um, do you do you try and get your way out of this this situation by having higher inflation and, and lower socioeconomic groups pay for it, or do you say to foreign nations who who lent you the money in the first place, sorry, love doesn't live here anymore, or or renegotiate? So you know that's that is at a true uh, global extreme. Those two examples. Uh, but, you know, it, personally at this bank, we do worry about about um, those relative impacts, um, but we have limited tools, but we can explain and talk through. 
you know, our number one um, challenge over the last couple of years was just the impact on housing and house prices. The underlying cause is that we didn't build any houses for 20 years. Um, so, you know, when we shifted interest rates, the, the impact was outsized. Um, every country has the same example. The asset classes might differ a bit. So just finally, you know, what were pe- people coming to you and asking about New Zealand? Yeah, it was, um, thank you for that. And this is going to sound a bit trite, but I have to say I was uh, very humbled by how much people knew about what we're doing. Uh, very proud by the fact that we were called out, I think, uh, three times independently as the central bank who will be the most innovative, has tended to be in the front of the curve and was talked about um, by um, having the most success and halting QE and starting the tightening cycle and being on top of it. So an enormous amount of uh, interest in anything that um, we're up to is um, is out there. I mean, right down to, um, you know, um, the UK, France, the Netherlands, the US, Brazil, South Korea, all of the governors, um, you know, interviewing me at length on on bits and pieces. So it was good. And um, the Jackson Hole is famous as a place that was launched to get Paul Volcker along because he was a keen fly fisherman. Did you get a chance during the lunch breaks to to catch any fish? Yes. No, sorry. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's my fourth time there. So I've had, I've had, you know, I've been on a couple of good hickories around around the place. It's incredible. It's a stunning place. Uh, warning to Kiwis, they have animals that can kill you there. Um, I thought they had tall possums, but then I saw beware of the grizzly bear sign. So um, I was back, back to the hotel. This time around, didn't have time. Adrian Orr, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Kia ora. Thank you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiai Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.